Bibles, this is uh, kind of a long introduction to the next song we're going to sing. We're not quite entirely ready to finish up Isaiah chapter 59, but what I want you to see initially is that this theme of to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles is actually a theme all of, uh, through all of Scripture, that we have these, these constant pictures in Scripture, Isaiah included, where we see all, all the other nations are taking note as to what God is doing for his people Israel. Uh, the, the Israelites, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they enter into and they experience blessing because God is faithful to his promise. He is faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. He is faithful to the covenant he made with David. And as Israel is blessed, blessing comes to all the other nations. Blessing comes to all of creation. And the other nations experience and understand things about God because of what God is doing for Israel. They understand something of God's character, his identity, his power, his wisdom. They understand that God has, is a righteous ruler and he's able to bring righteousness to bear on earth. As sin-cursed as it is, God is able to bring righteousness on earth, and God is able to save his people. And they're going to know that because it's clearly what God does for Israel. And they will testify and bear witness to that fact of God's power and wisdom in, in all those situations. Let me give you some examples. This is going back to Exodus initially, and then we're going to turn and look at it in Isaiah. If you're familiar with the story of how Israel was born a nation... Not just uh, starting with the people, the, the patriarchs, not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but Jacob took his family down into Egypt where they lived in the best of the land because Joseph was the second in command to the Pharaoh during a time of drought. And so they were placed in, in good land. But after a generation or so, pharaohs rose up and the Egyptians didn't like all these immigrant people that had come into their land and they made them slaves. But God sent Moses to be their deliverer, to take them out of Egypt, where he would take them to the, to the land he promised the patriarchs. It would be a land flowing with milk and honey. But the Lord told Moses very clearly, he said, The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. I'm going to teach the Egyptians that I am the Lord. It's very similar language to what you're going to find in Isaiah. Because in Isaiah, we started in chapter 40. We're going to finish chapter 59 today. And in those chapters, so often the Lord says, I am the Lord, there is no other God. I don't go by many different names for different cultures and people groups. I alone am the Lord God. There is no other God. And I'm going to teach Egypt that all the way back in Exodus chapter, I read you chapter 7 and verse 5. Then in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all my plagues on your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The Egyptians are going to find out. It's not the Hebrews have their God, the Egyptians have their gods, and they're different gods, different compete. There's only one, and I'm going to teach the Egyptians that. 
He, the Lord says, continues, now if, I, now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I've raised you up, that I may show my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. My name is going to be declared in all the earth because what I do for my people that I've entered into a covenant with my people Israel. All the earth is, is going to start with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, but all the earth is going to hear what I do for my people. Exodus chapter 14. This is uh, when they have just crossed the Red Sea. The Lord has opened up a way and they've been delivered through the Red Sea. Or maybe it's right before that happens, actually. Uh, chapter uh, 14, verse 4, it says, Then I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will pursue them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, that the Egyptians may know that I am the Lord. And they did so. And then skipping down to verse 17, And I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots, his horsemen. Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've gained honor for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots, his horsemen. I mean, the Lord is teaching Egypt, and all the nations are going to hear this, all the nations around, because it's to the Jew first, to the Gentiles also. What the Gentiles know about the Lord God starts with what God reveals to Israel, what God reveals to his people. So that in Joshua chapter 2, Moses is now dead. Joshua sends spies into the land, and those spies wind up at Rahab's house. And when those spies have this conversation with Rahab, Rahab says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Gog, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above, and on earth beneath. Now please swear to me by the Lord that you also show kindness to my family because I showed kindness to you. She reports to Joshua, Joshua's uh, spies, we've heard these things. We heard how the Lord dried up the Red Sea. That was 40 years ago. She's recounting something that they're still talking about because it is such an unprecedented event. What happened 40 years ago? We heard about that and we are fearful. Because we know your God is not like our God's. He does things our God's cannot do. He cares for his people in ways our God's cannot care for us. We've heard those things. We've heard those things. That's Rahab's report. This is the same thing you find in Isaiah. What the Lord does for Israel affects the nations. In your Bibles, in Isaiah, I'm assuming you've opened there maybe by now. If you haven't, go ahead. Turn to Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to give you a couple good examples of this. What the Lord does for Israel affects the other nations. Time and again, this is promised in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45. These are, uh, these are, I'm going to show you places of Scripture we've already been. 
chapter 45 and verse 14. Isaiah 45, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you. There is no other, no God besides him. These other nations are wrecking. They're going to bring their wealth to you just like the Egyptians gave their wealth to the Hebrews before they left the land. These, these people groups that are mentioned in 45 are going to give their wealth to you and they're going to bow down before you and they're going to say, your God is not like our God. Your God is not like our God. Chapter 49, Isaiah 49, verse 22. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders." Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you, Israel, will know that I am the Lord. It starts to the Jew first. The Lord is revealing himself to Israel first. You are going to know I am a God who keeps his promises. You are going to know I am a God who loves his own and doesn't forsake or abandon them. The gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, according to Romans. Then uh, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Verse uh, 24, can the prey be taken from the mighty? I like This seems like an impossible thing. The Jews have no power. Uh, they've been scattered all around. Can, can they actually be regathered in the homeland? That's the question of verse 24. Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. It starts off, you're going to know that I'm the Lord. But because of what I do for you, all people are going to know I am the Lord. That's the, that's the Psalm 98. That's the songs we're singing. What God does for his covenanted people way back in Genesis is going to be a witness and a call to all the world to take notice. There's only one God. Well, let's see. Uh, I could go to chapter Let's go to chapter 56, Isaiah chapter 56. There's another good one in 52, but I'll just go to 56. We were in 56 not terribly long ago. Chapter 56, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing it any evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, well, 
the Lord will surely separate me from his people. In other words, now that God is, is redeeming his people, now that God is extending kindness and grace and mercy to his covenanted people, now I'm going you know, to be shut out. That's the fear. But it says, let not him say that. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, verse 4. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. And then this statement, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him, Israel, besides those already gathered, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. What the Lord does in his grace and mercy and judgment to the Jews is a lesson for all the world how the Lord will deal with all nations of the earth. Just as there is mercy found in this Lord God, there is also a righteous judgment found in this Lord God. And Israel is an example to all the nations. That's the theme of Exodus. One of the themes of Exodus. That's certainly one of the themes of Isaiah. And this is all accomplished because one individual is able to unseal the scroll that had the seven seals. It's all possible because there is one who is Lord of heaven and earth who is made man and he is worthy to open those scrolls. Or open that scroll. So in your bulletin, that same little blue sheet, we'll sing the most lovely song. I wish the video projector were going and we could show the video that goes with it. But we'll sing with Andrew Peterson, Is He Worthy? Now, in Isaiah chapter 59, we'll finish up this chapter. Isaiah chapter 59, we just have the last few verses to do. Charles Ryrie was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. I didn't agree with all of his positions all the time, but he was a gracious, charitable individual. And sometimes people I agree with their position more seem to exhibit far less charity and grace than Charles Ryrie did. I had the, had the experience of actually listening to him. He came to Cedarville University back when I was there. It was a college back in the day. And he came to Cedarville, and he was one of the speakers, and, and I listened to him on several occasions. Terribly dry speaker, who was positively brilliant. And so if you just are impressed with people and the presentation, and you miss the material, uh, Charles Ryrie was probably lost on those individuals. He wasn't flashy, but his depth of knowledge and understanding and his, his devotion to Scripture was high, uh, as much as anyone I've ever known. So Isaiah, uh, Charles Ryrie divides the chapter up this way. He would say the first eight verses provide a description of Israel's sins. The next seven verses uh, provide a confession of Israel's sins. 
And then the last six verses uh, describe the blotting out of Israel's sins. So you've got the charges labeled against Israel, a description of their sins. You've got all of Israel confessing their sins. And then you've got the Lord blotting out or pardoning or taking away their sins in the last six verses. Let me give you just a taste. The confession looks like in verse 12, Israel says, the plural pronouns, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. Our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. There's no hiding from their sins in verse 14. They confess their sins before the Lord God Almighty. And then uh, the Lord is going to... to work to take away their sins. And the situation that we've come into, that we've looked at for two weeks, verse 14, justice is turned back, righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Whatever the solution is to this problem, it isn't going to be found in Israel. No prophet, no king, no judge, no raising up some mighty whoever. There's only one person worthy to accomplish this work of pardoning of sins, taking away transgressions, and that's going to be the Lord's promised Messiah. So what happens next? I'm going to read uh, beginning the second half of verse 15, and I'll read a few verses. There's a theological term for what happens next. Now, it's not a word, it's a term. Uh, It's actually four words. So I'll give you a chance to guess as to what this is known as in Scripture. It starts like this, reading the text in the middle of verse 15. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put, on a, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. What is that called? What just took place in those verses? What's the phrase for that? How is that described in Christian theology? Anyone? This thing is characterized, this phrase is characterized by a, a threefold description. Number one, it's a time of the Lord's intervention. The Lord does something because nobody else is able to do something. So it's a time of the Lord's intervention, a dramatic intervention. It's climactic. I would call it, I didn't recently try to restudy the whole theme, so I'm relying on my memory and some past notes. It's, It's not a prolonged event. It's a sudden, climactic intervention of the Lord. What is that called? The day of the Lord. Lord. It's the day of the Lord. A climactic. And there are several of those in the Old Testament, through the Old Testament scriptures. But all of those are merely foreshadowing the ultimate day of the Lord, which will occur when Christ comes back in power and glory. With the angels of heaven 
with all of his power, and he is revealed to be King of kings and Lord of lords, Son of man and Son of God. That will be the ultimate, final, climactic day of the Lord. And a... Uh, intervention of God from on high. And when those day of the Lord's occur, besides it being uh, the Lord's doing, besides it being climactic and very singular, very focused, it's also associated with two, two outcomes. One is judgment and one is deliverance. Or to put it another way, one is wrath and one is grace. Or wrath and mercy. Both occur in the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt, and it meant they walked through the Red Sea as on dry land, and they were safe on the other side. But it meant destruction for Pharaoh and his chariots and his army. It meant both mercy and grace. So you've got this final climactic day of the Lord, and the Lord, in describing this particular event, as he describes his, his climactic intervention, he puts on garments, and two of those garments speak peace, and comfort to all who are waiting and put their hope in the Lord. And two of those garments speak terror because the Lord's coming is associated with grace and wrath. So the two garments uh, that speak comfort are he puts on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation. But the two articles that strike terror are he puts on garments of vengeance and he wraps himself in zeal as a cloak. All that is true in this climactic event. It's not just grace. It's not just mercy. It's not just wrath. It's both at the same time. Those that put their hope in the Lord are delivered. Those that don't are destroyed. So the outcome of this, as we read about it in Isaiah chapter 59, there are at least four main results of the Lord's intervention, of the Lord's coming. The first event or the first outcome is this idea of repayment. In verse 18, I read, uh, there's actually two different words in the Hebrew, but my English Standard Bible says, he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands, he will render repayment. In other words, what was lacking before he came was righteousness. What was lacking was justice. What was lacking was truth. But when the Lord intervenes, when he introduces himself, all that will be, be set aside. He will be perfectly righteous. He will be perfectly just. He will administer in absolute truth. Everything that was missing before is solved by his coming. And who are his enemies or who are his adversaries that face this wrath? Well, certainly it's all those that have aligned themselves against Israel. That's true enough, but in the more immediate context of Isaiah, if I go back to Isaiah chapter 58 and Isaiah chapter 57 and Isaiah chapter 56, the enemies are Israel's own leaders. Remember back in chapter 56 and verse 10, his watchmen are blind, they're without knowledge. They are all silent dogs, they cannot bark. Uh, and then in verse 11, they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way. Who are his enemies? Well, yes, it's nations that have aligned themselves against his people. 
but it's also his, the leadership within Israel. They are his adversaries. They have exploited the sheep, uh, the Lord's own sheep, the Lord's own people, and they will bear the brunt of the Lord's wrath as well. Uh, the same people are described in chapter uh, 58. Uh, you've, got, uh, you've got people worshiping God, but not in truth. Uh, they think that their worship of God is good enough, and it's not. In chapter 57, I skipped that chapter, but you've got uh, idolatrous people. He calls them sons of an adulteress. Uh, they're given to every type of sin, known to every type of Gentile. That's his own people. His enemies are within Israel. And judgment starts with the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. The Lord's perfect righteous judgment is to... It starts at home. I mean, even Peter, writing to, to the church, one of his epistles, he says, judgment begins with the house of the Lord. Now, I, I don't mean to say that the believers are going to face the wrath of the Lamb and not experience the joy of God's salvation, but God does care about the chastisement and the holiness of his people before he cares about the world. And God does care how I live my life before he cares about unbelievers who are, how they're living their lives. God cares for his own first. And that, that is a principle that carries over in Scripture. So, And this, this judgment is to the coastlands. There's no place that escapes this judgment. Well, if I go live in some little out-of-the-way place, um, I remember back at the turn of the century, uh, 1999, before it became 2000, there was the huge Y2K scare. And I knew lots of families that moved out to the country. Like, if things were going to go really bad, they wanted to be in a safe place. When the day of the Lord comes, there is no safe place. There is no island remote enough that you will escape the Lord's scrutiny, the Lord's wrath, if you are not reconciled to him through the, through, uh, the person and the work of Christ. There's no place to go. So this judgment, this righteousness, is to the coastline. That's the first result. The second result is in verse 19, so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun, that is, from the east. They shall fear the name of the Lord. Is that a positive result or is that a negative result? Is that a, is that a result of mercy or is that a result of wrath? And I'm going to suggest that it's both. It's a little bit of both. Just like the Lord made his power known to Pharaoh and Egypt, and Pharaoh discovered the wrath of the one who is the only true Lord God, Rahab discovered that there was mercy found in that Lord God, and she wanted to be associated with the Lord's people. So when it tells me they will fear the name of the Lord, I think there's a whole host of people who have aligned themselves against God, and they're going to find out that they're... He who sits in the heaven laughs at them, that they would align themselves against the Lord God Almighty. And they will fear because they will experience the terror and the dread of facing him whose eyes are blazing and, it, and out of whose mouth comes a sword of truth. But for those that have put their hope in Christ, they will fear in the way that they will fear. They want to... Uh, they, They've confessed Christ as their Lord. They've confessed Christ as their Savior. And they, they worship him and they rejoice that he's come back to, to deliver the promise that he's given to his people. In the same way that you've seen him go, he will come back again for his own. So both are true. 
both this coming is associated with wrath and judgment. It's also associated with grace and mercy and deliverance. Uh, The third result out of all this is uh, a redeemer will come to Zion in verse 20. A redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That's the third result, redeemer coming. And I'll explain this in a minute. Hopefully it'll make sense. The redeemer doesn't come to Zion because they've cleaned up their act. The redeemer comes to Zion because the Lord has redeemed them. And because the Lord has redeemed them, they are cleaning up their act. They have repented. Uh, Literally, it's a participle, it's a verb, it's a participle, it means... uh, So if I read verse 20, it would go this way. A redeemer will come to Zion to those turning back from transgression. It's because the Lord does something that they're turning back from transgression. It's not that they're turning back from transgression and now the Lord does something. I can prove this, and I will in just a moment. Uh, It's an effect, not a cause. Israel couldn't solve their problem. It's not like if you guys would just turn back from your sin, I'm going to come and the problem will be solved. That's impossible. It can't happen. And Isaiah's made that clear over and over throughout this great vision, this great prophecy. They can't solve the problem. The Lord is the one who's going to take away their transgression, which will cause them to turn rightly to him. And I will demonstrate that in a moment. The fourth result is in verse 21. This Redeemer's coming results in a new covenant. Verse 21 reads, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. This is a a new covenant. It's what Jeremiah talks about as being a new covenant. It's what Ezekiel talks about as being uh, taking out the the heart of stone and giving giving his people a heart of flesh. It's a it's a everlasting covenant is how it's referred to also in Ezekiel. I think Isaiah used the same term. term. It's a new covenant. It's a different covenant. It's not where he gives them laws written on tablets of stone. It's a new covenant where God reveals himself, his character, his holiness, written on the tablets of one's heart. So you've got three things in verse 21. You've got my covenant, which speaks of a relationship with his people. You've got my spirit, which speaks of God's presence with his people, a relationship which is uh, described as my presence is with you, my spirit is with you, and then you've got my words that I put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, my truth. So it's a relationship, it's the presence of God, and it's the truth of God all associated in this new covenant in this new thing that God is doing. And what God does in this new covenant is not going to depart from their mouths. It's it's never going to be affected by, by their sin and rebellion again. It's everlasting. It's what they were supposed to do with the Mosaic covenant. It's what the Lord told Moses to do. It's what the Lord told Joshua to do with the old covenant. Don't let these words depart from your mouth. You've got to teach them to your children. You've got to write them on your doorposts. You've got to memorize these things. You've got to commit these things to heart. 
It's exactly what the Lord told the people to do with the Mosaic Covenant. But they didn't do it. They failed time and time again, no matter how explicitly God revealed his will. They failed to obey it. But this covenant, it will be kept. Because it's written on the tablets of of the heart. It's written on the tablets of their heart by the grace of God in Christ. It's not based upon their obedience, their performance, their merit. It's based upon the merit of Christ. It's based upon the obedience of Christ, even unto death, where he took the wrath of God that belonged to me, and I received the righteousness of Christ that belonged to him. Oh, let's see. The interesting thing is, and then I'll open it up for comments and questions in just a moment. Verses, nine, or verses 20 and 21 are quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 11. So I have inspired scripture that gives me commentary on how to understand what Isaiah wrote. So turn in your Bibles to Romans, and I meant to, in case you're using a pew Bible and you're not exactly sure where Romans is, I meant to look up the page number and I forgot. But in Romans chapter 11, turn there if you would. Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 are Paul's theology of Israel. In Romans chapter 9, Paul describes Israel's past. In Romans chapter 10, Paul describes Israel's present. In Romans chapter 11, Paul describes Israel's future. So it's a pretty comprehensive theology of Israel. If you could reduce it to three chapters, that's what Paul did. He talks about their past, he talks about their present, and he talks about their future. So Romans chapter 11, we read this in, uh, say, verse 25, and, and all of these, I mean, a greater these verses, so much could be, more could be said than what I could possibly say. We could easily devote a lesson or two just on this text. But let me jump up at verse, jump in at verse 25. Paul writes to Gentiles, that would be the likes of me and probably everyone here, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So a mystery in Scripture is not like a mystery in English. If you watch a mystery on TV, there's a lot of, I don't know what's going to happen, and, and you're left guessing, and it may be solved at the end. But in the Bible, a mystery is something that one time was not understood, but now is understood. So what wasn't known before is now revealed. So in, in the Bible, a mystery has more to do with now we know, but in, in our culture, a mystery is, I still don't know what's going on. So the mystery, uh, is, he starts, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then he starts quoting Isaiah, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Now, the way I read it in Isaiah is it says he comes to those who turn from transgression. But Paul says it's not that they're turning from transgression. It's that the deliverer banishes transgression. The deliverer 
saves them from their transgression and their ungodliness. He solves the problem that they can't solve. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, that is, you Gentiles, but have now received mercy because of the Jews' disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. So what's taking place is Israel's disobedience reflects the Gentiles' disobedience. Jews are no better than Gentiles. For all that God has done for Israel, giving them the covenants, sending them the prophets, giving them kings, giving them judges, giving them his law, for all that God has done for Israel, their disobedience looks just like the Gentiles. They're no better. But in that disobedience of Israel, God brings mercy to the Gentiles. That's me. But Israel is still in a state of largely hardening, disobedience. But in bringing mercy to Gentiles, God is now going to bring mercy to Israel as well. When the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in, then God will also bring mercy as a whole to Israel. Um, and all of this is meant to result in, like if you were to ask me the question, so what? What am I supposed to get out of this? What is my takeaway? The takeaway is verse 33 in Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. What God wants, you, what God wants me to know, what God wants you to know, is that none of us are worthy. There is none righteous no, not one. All have turned aside. No matter what God may possibly give you, I mean, you could celebrate, you know, I thank God I'm born in a free country, uh, you know, that we have liberties that many nations don't have, that we can carry scriptures with us, we can assemble together as believers, we can celebrate all these things, but it doesn't take away the sin of my heart to have these liberties and freedoms. God has to take away the sin of my heart. So in spite of all my disobedience, God does a work of grace to take away sin. And we as Gentiles celebrate that, but we shouldn't be so lofty as to think God is finished with Israel because the gifts and calling of God are without repentance, irrevocable. Uh, I know there's a better way to say that word, and I practiced it like early in the year, and I've lost how to say it. Uh, but you know what I mean. Comments and questions. This, I hit you with a whole lot of information, so it would be completely legitimate if you had a comment or a question. And if I could clarify something, I'd be glad to give it a go. Yes? Do you, do you believe over the last century that it's a nation of Israel being given to Israel? Uh, I, definitely so. Does... Uh, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating question, and we could go a lot, we could take that a lot of different ways. We are in the last days, and 
the Apostle Paul also was in the last days. In other words, the work of redemption is complete, and the next thing is Christ coming back with this intervention, this day of the Lord. And so we are on the precipice, as the church has been on the precipice for a long time. No, no people on earth have ever been closer to the day of the Lord than we are. And it may not come for a thousand years. And it may come before we leave. I mean, I, those, both those things are true. But here, here's what happened, because that's a fascinating point. And one of, one of the things I've learned, uh, I, love, I love theology. And I love trying to understand scripture as God has revealed it. I also love church history. I think church history is positively fascinating. And if you don't learn from church history... It's, uh, you're not better for it, you're worse for it. And one of the things that happens, and I'm sure it's happening now, but because I live in 2021, I can't see it very well. But looking back on church history, I can see how often the church is affected. Their theology is affected by what's happening in the world. So what happened, speaking to your point, what happened... uh, largely through much of church history, is that there was no theology of Israel because Israel was scattered over the nations of the earth. They were not a distinct people group so far as you could locate them anywhere. And so church, church theology reflected, came up with this idea that the church, uh, the church is the new Israel. And that's just not where I'm at. I think God has made promises to Israel. I think Paul reveals in Romans chapter 11, he's going to fulfill those promises to Israel. I think what I'm reading about in Isaiah, there are very specific promises given to a very specific people. All that's going to be fulfilled. But because it seems so impossible, for so many centuries of time, the church adapted their theology where God didn't have to keep the promises to Israel. And then Israel became a nation in 1948 which then sprung up the other extreme where everybody's like, oh, Israel's a nation. I'm going to get myself in trouble, which is really unfortunate. <laughs> because then, then you had uh, what I'll say, a type of dispensationalism I grew up with that I'm not completely comfortable with, that the church is going to be raptured and removed separate from the Lord's second coming, and that's just not where I'm at. But... That's okay if that's where you're at, because if, if there is a separate rapture of the church, I get to go too, whether I think that's what the Bible says or not. And it would be delightful to get out like that. I'm just not convinced of it from what I'm reading in, in the Bible. But the important thing is, Christ comes back in power and glory. He will reward the righteous. He will extend mercy and grace to those that have put their hope in him. The wicked will be punished there will be a new heaven and a new earth. I don't care what your eschatological chart looks like, those are the essentials. The other things I can, we can, we'll find out what happens. But what commonly happens is that the church gets a little bit of their theology from what they see happening in the world. And that's unfortunate. Joe. Yeah. You could, except you can't. But I know what you mean. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, so how do you explain that? Is it, I mean, is Greek theology the translation of the Old Testament in Greek? Is that? Yes, it is some different. And I, I can't tell you off the top of my head, but you're exactly right. Uh, 
Jesus used a Septuagint, like often when he quoted scripture, it was generally from the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew. Uh, I think, I want to say, I think Paul did the same thing. And there are some nuances of difference. Because Paul quotes it, and we know all of scripture is given by inspiration of God, I know Isaiah is inspired of God. I also know Romans is inspired of God. So what Paul says is is uh, enhanced, it's giving, in light of what God has revealed and done in the Messiah, is now being given a fuller explanation than what Isaiah was able to give. So now I know when Isaiah talks about them turning from their transgression, that wasn't what caused God, the Redeemer, to come. It was the result of the Redeemer's coming, because that's exactly what Paul tells me. In fact, that's actually what Isaiah says in other texts, it's only because I'm going to take away your transgression. It's not because of what you did. So it is consistent, but if all you had was that verse in Isaiah, your, your, what you understood about salvation would look quite different from what it looks like in light of Romans. So that's a great question, and there are very technical commentaries that debate, you know, ex- try to explain all that stuff, which would be, that would be a question for John, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Uh, Cindy. I'm just struck by the fact that a lot of the prophecies in the Gospels that are quoted still doesn't say that in, you know, this came from the right now in the Hebrew. Yeah. If you go back to the because I'm not inspired, and so if I try to pull up verses and, and give you new understanding and new meaning, uh, that makes me a false teacher, because I'm not inspired. But that's a great point. <laughs> now we're on a roll. Dave? That's a great question, too. I'm going to say it includes all 12 tribes of Israel. One of the objections to that, because Israel in the Old Testament divided, you had ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And the ten tribes to the north were, I'm going to say, largely lost, though in the New Testament uh, you've got somebody from the tribe of Asher, which was one of the ten tribes. So she, I think it was a she in Luke's gospel. Uh, But at any rate, the point is this. I'm kind of faced with the same thing that the church in the Middle Ages were faced with when Israel wasn't a nation. And they're like, Israel's not a nation. We think God's done with Israel. And now we've got the question of, well, how are there going to be 12 tribes of Israel when nobody can identify their tribe anymore? I'm like, you know what? That's not my problem. I think God's got a plan for Israel. I read about it in the Old Testament. How, how there could be 12 tribes of Israel when nobody can identify who's from what tribe other than the tribe of Levi, I think there are people that can know they're from the tribe of Levi. If their last name is Levi or Cohen, that's, that's a priestly name. That's, they're pr- almost certainly from the tribe of Levi. But for the other 11 tribes, I, I don't think you can know. The very name Jew goes back to the tribe of Judah. That's where it's derived from. So when we talk about Jews, we're largely really talking about people from the tribe of Judah, though I don't think that's always the case. I think a Jew could be from one of the other ten tribes, but I don't know which one. I think God will figure that out. But that's a great question, and that's a, that seems to be an obstacle 
for some. Uh, Terry. Uh, a little bit along that line, That's true. Whether God chooses to use that as a means that's possible, I, I'm quite convinced he doesn't need it. And I, and maybe, and I think it's, I think I'm equally convinced what I think is a problem, God is going to be like, you are so worried about who belongs to what tribe. <laughs> like, I could see God, like, you are, like, you've wasted so much time. <laughs> the point of all of this is to realize the magnificence of the grace of God and the wisdom of God, like in Romans eleven thirty three and 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The point in all of this to the church in Romans chapter 11 is, you know what? The fact that you are experiencing mercy right now, that's, you don't, you are so undeserving of mercy. You weren't given the law. You weren't sent prophets and patriarchs. God didn't do all these things for you Gentiles. The fact that you are experiencing mercy and can call yourself a son or a daughter of the living God, does that not impress you? Does that not make you want to share this good news with other people? Because it's not always going to be like this. A fullness of the Gentiles will be brought in, and there God will turn to redeem his people Israel, and the door to salvation to the nations will be closed. When Christ comes back in power and glory, it's too late to admit he was king of kings. It's too late. Now is the time to believe. And good news, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever. Whoever. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.